didn't go out on the web. <laughs> Providential. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that you invite us into your presence. And we thank you that you speak to us via your word through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we pray as Christ prayed, sanctify us in the truth. Thy word is truth. This we pray in the grand name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. One of the attributes of God is language. I know I mentioned that several years back, and uh, somebody thought it was something worth repeating. Excuse me. And uh, <clears throat> it was repeated, and these people said, I've never heard of that. Well, that's a true statement. If you pick up a, sync, a systematic theology, you will not hear that one of God's attributes is language. But brothers and sisters, we talk to each other because God talks to us. We have a communicable attribute with God. We speak. The difference is he always speaks the truth and he always speaks profoundly for just what is needed. And when he speaks, what he wants accomplished comes into being or is taken out of being. 
and he speaks with the full plethora of vocabulary, and he speaks with artistic, literary precision, and he speaks and writes through his chosen ones a book that is the most incredible book that has ever been written on the face of the earth, and it is a literary genius. You cannot summarize that in Christ died for my sins. That is part of this literary genius. But when you grow to appreciate music and you can identify the parts of music and you know what you like and you go to a symphony and it has meaning to you, you've grown some in musical precision. Literature is the same way, and the Bible is a work of art. And it's true, it's propositional. You can hear the truth and ignore the literature. You can hear the truth and you can miss so much because all you want to know is, am I going to heaven? If you want to know God, in a growing, growing, growing fashion. This book that we preach from every Sunday has to become much greater in your sight. It is fantastic. And the Gospel of John is just so much literature that is so beautiful, it just knocks you out. <laughs> Sitting up this morning from 1 to 3, just thinking about, oh my goodness, wore me out, had to go back to bed. <laughs> John is this book that has the shortest story about the triumphal entry. And when we think about Palm Sunday and Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, we turn to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John is very short. It contains just a few verses with quotation from Zechariah chapter 9 and quotation from Psalm 118, and seemingly that's it. But the section we, well, let me first say, the section of the book is divided into two parts. Ah, you have chapters 1 through 11, excuse me, 12, and it's usually called the sign book. And you can mark out within that sign book seven different signs that Jesus did. And then you have chapters 13 through 21, and by the end of chapter 12, Jesus, like in all the Gospels, is no longer speaking publicly. He's only speaking privately. And in chapters 13 through 21, he is speaking privately to his disciples. He is put on trial. He says just a very few words in his trial. And he's killed and buried and rises and meets his disciples again with just 
a few words. If you separate out this division and you just have chapters 1 through 21, what people like to do is find seven signs when, in fact, you could say there are eight. In chapter 6, you have the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, and sometimes those are smooshed together as one so that if you just want to look at the book as a whole, you start out with the wedding in Cana of Galilee and you end up with the death and resurrection. Oh, in another garden. A new creation. That's a beautiful way to look at the book. There's another way if you keep the two divisions separate, one that's all the public and one that's all the private. If you keep them separate, then in the book of signs, you separate feeding 5,000 and the walking on water. And once again, you have seven signs, which brings you from a wedding feast, and then it brings you all the way down to another feast. In chapter 12, in a house that's held for Jesus and Lazarus is present. Well, so you can look at the book that way. And so you have here seven signs, which, of course, you know, it's not just coincidental. It's not like it's six or 10 or 25. The, the end of the book, remember, he says, if we wrote all that Jesus did, I suppose the world couldn't contain it. It's seven. And of course, seven <coughs> drives you right back to the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and all things were made through Him. Drives you all the way back to Genesis, and in Genesis, oh yes, it's, it's a seven day creation but this creation is marred troublesome wearisome oh besides all the beauty and all the wonder that god graciously gives us it's all of that because of sin and of course it just doesn't work out right because of sin and the one thing that never works out right is you just die but then you go from a seven-day creation, and then, lo and behold, there's one more sign. Jesus' death and resurrection. Ah, day eight. What? New creation. That's John's message. Well, here we are. We're going to look at just a little bit of chapter 12. It's amazing to think about. And when you work your way through chapter 12, you realize, oh, my goodness, this uh, actually goes with chapter 11, and it is one large section. If you would turn then to John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. 
So you have this huge, long 57-verse chapter. But right at the beginning, he wants you to know we're going somewhere. We're going to chapter 12 where we're going to see that little incident. And so what happens in chapter 12 is tied up with chapter 11. You just can't get away from it. He's tying it all together. And of course, I mean, if you just read it, you see some of that. Well, we know this Mary, that she happens to be the lady that likes to be at the Lord's feet. So in Luke chapter 10, when they're eating and Martha's serving and all worried about her serving, where's Mary? Well, she's chosen the better part. She's at Jesus' feet. And when her brother dies, ah, because Jesus waited too long. Then when Jesus comes, she comes running out and she throws herself at Jesus' feet. And then in chapter 12, there's this little feast that's taking place for Jesus and Lazarus happens to be reclining at the table too. And this Mary goes to Jesus' feet. Well, now we have in each of the Gospels a story about a lady who does something with Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. The first years of my church going in Portland, Oregon, we're at a Pentecostal church, and there was a rule in that church. Well, there were lots of rules. And one of them was, ladies... Your hair had to be long enough to dry Jesus' feet. Now, I'm not quite sure how they tested that, but they did have uh, foot washing ceremonies periodically in the church. I never went to one. I mean, I guess kids weren't allowed. I don't know. And they did keep the men and women separate, so the men washed the men's feet and the women washed the women's feet. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. You said... Oh, well, we'll leave that alone. <laughs> so here we are then in this story of a Lazarus, and you know exactly what happened. Lazarus got sick, and Jesus knew about it, and he waited, and he waited until Lazarus died. Then he went out. Well, his disciples were worried about him going up to Bethany near Jerusalem because the religious leaders were out to put him to death. And his little foray into Jerusalem is going to only increase the fury of this trouble. So he goes up, and Lazarus is dead for four days. And he's in a tomb with a stone in front of it. You can roll the stone away, and then you can enter the tomb. And, you know, you, you, just, have to, you, you just have to love the literature. I mean, it, it just broadens out the story. So here's Jesus, and Martha's talking to him. Martha says, Lord, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. 
Then when Mary comes out later on, Martha goes and gets her, tells a little lie. The Lord is looking for you. It's not in the text recorded that way, but anyway, so she comes out. What does she do? She throws herself at Jesus' feet, and she says, Lord, if you would have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Then uh, some of the Jews who had surrounded Mary and when she'd come out from the house to meet Jesus out by the tomb, they were saying, couldn't this man who healed the eyes of a blind man have prevented him from dying? Well, now you know why Jesus waited. Because I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Well, the story, you know, is something. Jesus says, roll the stone away. And Martha says, Lord, he's been dead four days. He stinketh by now. I suppose that was probably pretty true, don't you think? And then when you come to chapter 12, and the story contrasts with a stench and a fragrance. One dead body stinks. Another dead body smells great. You know, death is uh, quite something in the Bible. There's a lot made of it. And, of course, we make a lot of it, too, because we can't avoid it. Listen to this. <clears throat> For I delivered to you of first important what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve and so forth. When you think your way through the book of Genesis, you're just working through the chapters. And here comes the death of Sarah. And Abraham has no place to bury her. So he goes out and buys a plot of land. And you get a whole chapter on this. And he buries her. Later on in the book, Rachel was buried just before Bethlehem when she died giving birth to Benjamin. Later on the book, Jacob dies, and there's this huge lament, and the Egyptians went with the Hebrews and went back into the land of Canaan to bury Jacob. And then there was Joseph. 
he died. And he wanted so much to be buried in the homeland, the promised land, that he said, okay, when you're delivered and you go back, you carry my bones up with you. And he was embalmed. Now, I don't know how well that worked out, but they did carry him. That's quite something, isn't it? To carry a box of bones for 40 years till you enter the promised land. So in uh, John chapter 12, it says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, uh, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, in this section, you find these therefores. Well, therefores are conclusions that are drawn. I mean, you can jump from one passage to another and tie them together without a therefore. Therefore is one of these kind of logical terms. This is a conclusion that you should easily reach, the writer is telling us. You should come to this conclusion. Therefore, Jesus came to Bethany. Well, at the end of chapter 11, of course, he'd been hanging out down away from to stay out of public trouble because it wasn't his time yet, and he knew they were out to kill him. And uh, an edict went out from the Pharisees and the religious leaders, if anyone knows where Jesus is, you are supposed to tell the authorities so that he can be arrested. Therefore, Jesus went to Bethany. Why? Because Jesus, of course, in the book of John, is being shown as the one who is in charge. He is going to make sure the hour happens at just when the hour is supposed to happen. So here he arrives in Bethany, and he is with Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Then it says in uh, verse 2, so they made him a supper. Uh, they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him, with Jesus. So now, we have this room. We don't know how big it is. If all the disciples are there, it would seem logical that all the disciples are there. Well, you got 12 disciples, including that traitor Judas. And you got Jesus, that's 13. And you got Lazarus, that's 14. And maybe Mary's seated at the table too. Martha's not. She's serving. Surprise, surprise, surprise. And, uh, and, and so you have one big feast, and you know, you can take a long table and you can squinch a lot of people around it, you know, but when you're laying on your elbow, let me remind you, because I like to do this. The problem is I'm getting so old I can't get up from it anymore. Like this, you know, and you're reaching out to the table. So you got, you got men, and I'm sure some of them, you know, are maybe they're not as tall as Ethan, but maybe they are, you know. And so you're stretched way out there all around this room, and they're eating away, and they're celebrating, of course, Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead, 
And the evidence is reclining right at the table. Verse 3, Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the fragrance was was filling uh, excuse me and the house was filled by the fragrance of the perfume therefore therefore they're all sitting around the table and we know it's her propensity to be at the feet of Jesus but they're therefore what Well, now, you have, this, you have this scene going on where Lazarus has been raised from the dead. The evidence is sitting at the table. And you've got all these religious leaders telling people, if you know where he is, you tell us. And the people know what they want. They want to kill him. That's their plan. They're going to seize him. They don't want to seize him right in the Passover week. But they do want to seize him. They don't want to seize him then because there's maybe 200,000 people in town and they don't want to riot on their hands, but they do want to seize him. But, of course, he's going to end up being seized during Passover week. Therefore, this is what she did. Well, now, this is, this is, this is literature at its best because here is sitting one man who was dead who's been raised, and he's eating. And over here is sitting one man who hasn't died. But just like with Barabbas, and Mary knows this, Lazarus lives because Jesus is going to die. My life for years, Jesus says. No, it's not stated. It's the literature that tells you that. And so what does she do? Well, she does something that is socially unacceptable, highly unacceptable. And she's this wonderful, godly lady. You know, there's a story in Luke, in Luke chapter 7, where Simon the Pharisee gives a reception and he invites Jesus to the reception, and Jesus comes and reclines at a table, and as soon as this sinner lady, a prostitute, knows that he's there, she comes behind him, and she begins weeping on his feet and drying his feet with her hair and kissing his feet and pouring perfume on his feet. And Simon the Pharisee says, Well, yeah, this guy couldn't be a prophet. If he were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is and what kind of sinner he is, and he wouldn't let her touch her. Simon, I have something to ask you. Say it, Jesus. Simon, when I came into your house, you gave me no water for my feet. You know, gave me no greeting of kiss. You gave me no oil to anoint my head. But this woman, from the moment she came in, has been weeping at my feet and drying my feet with her hair. And she's been kissing my feet and putting perfume on my feet. 
Simon. A lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, almost two years' wages of work. The other owed 50, and he forgave them both. Which one will love more? Well, I suppose the one that was forgiven more. You've said correctly, Simon. Well, so, you know, we, we just pick up on that story. And, and here's a prostitute. Who can trust a prostitute? They are unseemly. They do things in public you shouldn't be doing. That's nothing. But now you got Mary, proper Mary, a godly woman, and she is doing something. I don't have any to let down to show you. She's doing something that's not acceptable. When you're out in public, your hair is up. And when you come home for the man you love, you let your hair down. Now Mary, with all these men around this table, has let her hair down. And she's got this perfume that's pure nard. It's worth a lot of money. 300 denarii. A denarius is what a man makes in a day back in that culture. So let's just say, uh, what? Well, you know, I, I've been involved in helping some people, and it's really hard to live on your own at $20 an hour. $20 an hour is $40,000 a year. And if you rent an apartment and you drive a car to work, unless you're getting help from elsewhere, you're just not going to make it. So let's just say this nard's worth $40,000. Now, if you turned back to Mark and Matthew, you'll discover it's written a little bit differently. First of all, Mary's not named. It's surely the same story. And it's couched in a sandwich. <coughs> Pharisees and chief priests, the story about Jesus, and then, and then Pharisees and chief priests making a deal with Judas. And in that story, in Matthew and Mark, the disciples grumble. And Jesus says, stop bothering her. That's not the way we would say it today. We would say, stop harassing her. She's done a good thing to prepare for my burial. And let me tell you this. You always have the poor with you. You don't always have me with you. You can help them at any time. That you can't do for me at any time. I'm only shortly here. And I'll tell you another thing, says in Matthew and Mark. Wherever this gospel is preached, this story is going to be told as a memorial of what she did. You don't find that in John. No, what you find in John is a woman who is in love with Jesus as her Lord and Master, and he's done something lots of people in this room would like him to do right now for them. Bring back my brother. Bring back my son. You'd give anything for that, wouldn't you? And that's what happened. 
By this time he stinketh, Lord. And Jesus raises him from the dead. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, you know, you, you, you read that and that's going to send you through the Bible. Nard's not found that many times in the Bible. Nard is found in the Song of Solomon. And in the Song of Solomon, there are three wasifs. That is, where you admire your lover from the head to the toe or from the toe to the head, describing your lover's anatomy, put it that way. Well, in the first one, in chapter 4, Starts at the top of the head, and this hair, this hair. But by the time you get to the end of the chapter, it's about the smell of nard. And in chapter 1, she says, He's like nard between my breasts all night long. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is, Hair hanging down is either somebody who is highly uh, uh, immoral in the Bible, when we're talking about a woman, that is, or we're talking about a husband-wife relationship. And, of course, the book of Song of Solomon was not written to uh, 21st century people to describe what a wonderful sex life is like. That's not why it's there. That may be contained in it. It's there to describe God and His love for His people and God's people and their love for God described in terms that we can get some kind of handle on, grab hold of. So when you look at John chapter 12, you're looking at Jesus Christ who is going to give his life in exchange for the life of his bride. He's going to pay the ultimate bride price. I don't know how much of that Mary knows, but what she does know is here's my brother alive, and this has happened because Jesus is going to die. And she says, you know, I want part of that action and think about this when you take two people you know and one's all perfumey and smells good and the perfumey smelling good woman reaches up and kisses her husband and rubs her head on it he walks away what smelling like his wife and so it says this fragrance filled the room. Because now we're, we're talking about the God of the universe and a woman who is representative of the church. And we're 
still talking in a bit of Old Testamentish terminology. So we're thinking of a tabernacle where God lives and this fragrant aroma rises up to God. Or we're talking about a tabernacle into which comes the Shekinah glory cloud of God and fills the place. And when the tabernacle was dedicated and the temple was dedicated, it happened so grandly that everybody had to leave. That's the picture it should bring to you. She took this pure nard and she anointed Jesus' feet. You know, over here in Matthew and Mark, it says she anointed the head. But in Matthew and Mark, Jesus said she did this, she anointed my body. So you can imagine... Just to make the two coincide, she anointed from head to toe. But when it came to wiping the perfume, she wiped it off his feet. It's an amazing passage. It, uh, it goes on. It says, it says it's 10 o'clock. It says in verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, to hand him over, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now, in Matthew Mark, the disciples are upset. Why was this wasted? That's the word that's used in Matthew and Mark. Why was this wasted? In the book of Mark, I believe it's Mark, maybe it's Matthew, said, they scolded her. Why did you waste this? Well, of course, it wasn't a waste because it was a sacrifice of love and it was a prophecy, a preparation for death. And so leave her alone, let her keep it for my burial. Well, so Judas is willing to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which equals 120 denarii. Oh, think of what he could have had if that 300 denarii had come into the box, huh? He values Jesus' body very little compared to Mary when you put the stories all together. And of course, this body of Christ is to be valued and this death is to be valued. And it reminds us of what it says in Psalm 116. Precious in the sight of Yahweh are the death of his covenant ones, his faithful once. Well, that word precious, friends, doesn't mean, you know, like a southern Texas woman would say, oh, you're so precious. 
Only they got to do it in a few syllables. You're so precious. No, it means valuable. Great money. Wait a minute. Wait, what, 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 what? The death of somebody is worth a lot of money? Well, it doesn't mean it that way. But now when we look at Jesus, who's anointed with this perfume that gives off a fragrance that runs down through the gospel ages, because Paul says in 2 Corinthians, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. And we put off this sweet aroma, this fragrance is the word, to the, those who are being saved, an aroma of life to life, and to those who are perishing, an aroma from death to death. Same words as they're used here, same words. And so you go out and you give the gospel, and it is this beautiful aroma. It really is. But, of course, if you're, if you're not among the elect and you're going to reject, it doesn't smell good. I think I told you before. I uh, happen to be working with a, 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 a pastor and his wife here in town. And so they came to me to talk to me about troubles they were having. And she came and talked to me. And, oh, man, she just smelled terrible. And I said, what is that perfume you're wearing? <coughs> well, it's called poison. She said, my husband says, it's indicative of our marriage. <laughs> well, it was one. It was the, one of the big ones advertised on television. Yes, I listen to television. <laughs> this was years ago, and it really was awful. And uh, my room just smelled like it every time she left. <laughs> but the gospel smells great. But look, you know, here I am talking with people I know well and who really say they like me. And, and we start talking about what's going on in the culture and all the gender trouble and, uh, you know, I say something like, well, you know, nature teaches us this issue. We don't even need the Bible here. Nature teaches us. Of course, nature is one of God's Bibles. I didn't say that to him, though. And he just got outstandingly angry. Why? Well, it's the reasons the Pharisees are angry. Here's the witness sitting right at the table. And all the world is going after him, they say. And then you start verse 20 in chapter 12, and sure enough, the Gentiles show up. The whole world's going after him. So they want to kill the witness. Just like our culture wants to kill rationality, reason, look, stand a naked man right in front of you and say, mm, no, no, that's female. Stand a naked woman, no, 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 that's male. I mean, come on, people. I thought seeing was believing. But you see, it's not true. I can look at, well, you can look at something. <laughs> and you can see what it is, 
And then one of these lost people can look at it and say, mm, no, that's not what it is. That's the Pharisees. Ah, yeah. This witness makes him look like the king of Israel. But we know he's not the king of Israel. So let's kill the witness so the evidence is gone. Well, we've run out of time. I did intend to move into chapter 13. Because in chapter 13, which is the private part now, this is the public part we're in. Chapter 13's the private part where he speaks to his disciples only. And what does Jesus do? Well, he's like Mary. He takes his cloak off and he wraps himself in a towel like Mary's wrapped in her hair. And he goes around and washes the disciples' feet. And the towel with which he's girded like Mary's hair that's stuck to her head. And he's got to get it way down here to wipe the feet. Jesus dries the feet of the disciples, including Judas. Peter says, oh, no, 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 Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part, no inheritance with me. Oh, Lord, then my hands and my... No. A man who is clean only needs his feet washed. Well, Mary's action gave off an aroma of the gospel. Jesus' life for Lazarus's life. And that aroma is still running down through the centuries. The smell cannot be taken away. It's not poison. It's life. And you and I have it. And then Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Well, it's a picture of the cross in one sense. But it goes deeper than that. It goes to something we need every day. And something, and mind you, it's, G, it's Mary in chapter 12. It's Jesus in chapter 13. So we're talking about husband and wife. And uh, before I close, I want to mention this. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. On that day, this aroma that wafted out from what Mary did was the crown of Jesus. That's what the church is. It's a shame for a man to have long hair, but long hair on a woman is a glory and a covering. And who gets the glory? Well, the man does. So Jesus, each day we come and we confess our sins. He washes our feet again and again. We've had that bath. Now our feet are being washed because we walk through life and we sin and we mess up. And he cleanses us. Just like when two people get married, oh, they walk through life. It's not always, you know, just romance. And sometimes harsh words are said. Sometimes things are... What do you got to do? Well, Jesus says, 
you have to forgive. But note, I've only touched the tip of the iceberg. These two stories go together, and they're talking about Christ and his church, and it's an amazing thing, an amazing thing to think, ah, yes, Jesus became human, and it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Of course, he's not quite like us because he never had any sin, but he did get a helper, and the helper's called the church, and the church is called the fullness of him who fills all in all. Stand with me. Father, we know uh, that this feast in the Gospel of John happened just prior to the triumphal entry and as a precursor and a picture of what would happen during the week and what would happen at the end of the week where Jesus would actually lay down his life for the sins of his people. And right here and now, we want to thank you that you've laid down your life for our sins. And we thank you that you've given us new life in Christ and that you've placed us into the body of Christ, the bride of the Lamb. And lo and behold, help us realize it and live up to it. We are the crown of our husband. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.